It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. So I've been thinking about learning to paint houses Spend the days up on the ladder inside my head But I'm scared to death of heights And the customer's always right So I'm drawn back to the drawing board again And on the fire escape from the back of the apartment, there's an old man smashing bottles against the old abandoned... Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Scared of Heights by Micah Schnabel of Columbus, Ohio. Micah is our featured musical artist of the week, so settle in and get comfortable Stick with us to the end of the episode, and we'll tell you more about Micah's special brand of folk and punk and play the whole song for you. That's interesting. I yeah, like that. I love yeah. the mix. That's yeah. awesome. But right now, stoke the fire and pull up another blanket. We've got a brand new mystery for you. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with me, as always, is our storyteller and researcher, Paula Schleiss, an award-winning journalist who spent some 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Well, this is one of those episodes where I don't have the foggiest idea of what's coming next. You know I like it that way, Steve. I catch you all fresh and wide-eyed. Yep, that's me, fresh and wide-eyed. So don't keep me waiting. Tell me what's going on here. Well, for this mystery, we're going to 1963, specifically 10 days in June in the southern half of Summit County. It's a month that starts with all the inherent promise of a new and exciting summer for Akron area youngsters who have finished the school year. But for three kids, their families, and their communities, it's a month that will end in stunning heartbreak. So our story begins June 2nd. And we're at the home of Joseph Kulesa on Lorena Avenue in Akron's West Hill neighborhood. Now, Joe is 16 years old, and he's just finished delivering his newspapers on this Sunday morning. He is not in a very good mood. The newspaper drop-off was late, and he gripes about it to his mom. He leaves the house soon after returning from his paper route. For what reason, we don't know. But the afternoon passes, dusk descends, and then darkness. Joe hasn't returned home. His worried parents call police. Now, Akron police begin investigating Joe's disappearance and quickly uncover a sign that is fairly common among runaways. He's been struggling at school. He's just finished his junior year at Archbishop Hoban High School. That's a private Catholic school on the city's east side. He'd been doing okay till the middle of the school year, but then his grades slumped and teachers noticed his attitude had taken a dive as well. When the school called his parents to talk about his absence, 
Joe's dad told them his son would not be returning to Hoban for his senior year. Hmm. Now, Joe is 175 pounds with blonde hair and green eyes. He's one of four children of Joseph Kulesa, a tire maker, and his wife, Donna. Now, young Joe's disappearance doesn't make the newspaper a sure indication that police are leaning toward the runaway, the runaway theory. Right. Right. Okay. But his parents aren't convinced. Why would he leave with nothing more than the clothes on his back? And why would he leave behind $30 in his bedroom? Well, as Joe's parents contemplate these questions, another family is about to face their own mystery. You know, I, that's right. $30 is a lot of money back then. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, okay. So three days later, on Wednesday, June 5th, just south of Akron in Green Township, Tommy Summerix is making plans with his friends. He's going on a picnic the next day, and he'll be hiking at Virginia Kendall Park on the weekend. Oh, okay. He could sure use a new pair of shoes, he tells his parents. Now, Tommy is just four days from his 16th birthday, but you wouldn't know that to look at him. He stands just five feet tall, and tips the scales at 87 pounds. That blue eyes are set into his baby face, and his crew-cut hair is blonde, almost white. Now, Tommy's a good brother. Every evening, he leads his younger siblings in prayer before bedtime. He's also a good friend. He's been delivering newspapers for a boy who's recovering from a foot operation. So now we have two newspaper Yes. Kids. Okay. And he's a good student. He'd just finished his freshman year at Green High School. He signed up to take a summer typing course at the school, but there would still be plenty of time for the things he loves, like building model airplanes and dismantling radios and being with his friends, of course. His parents give him $20, and they send him off to Nobles. That's a shoe store that was at Arlington Plaza. Oh, okay. That's, that, a, lot, that's a lot of money for shoes back then, too. Right? Well, he doesn't have to spend so. the whole amount. They, okay. they give him a $20 bill. Okay. And Arlington, Arlington Plaza is a pretty good hike from his home. I don't know how to say the name of the street. He lives on Shekelemi. Mm, no. S-H-I-K-E-L-L-A-M-Y. I know a lot of streets, but that doesn't sound I familiar. ran this past a couple friends of mine in green, and they didn't know how to pronounce it. Okay. Anyway, it's on Shekelemi Drive. That sounds good. So he leaves about 6.15 p.m., and it takes the better part of an hour to get to the store. Now, he picks out a pair of gray suede sports shoes, at a cost of six bucks and change. Tommy puts the rest of his cash in his wallet, and he leaves the store by 7.30. Now, it's possible, even likely, that Tommy tried to thumb a ride back home. He'd done that several times before. Like I said, his home is a few miles away. But we don't know if he did that on this day, because Tommy will never make it back. As night descends, John and Mary and Summerix are getting anxious. They make a few phone calls to see if Tommy stopped to visit anyone along the way, but nobody has seen him. They decide it's time to call the Summit County Sheriff's Office. Now, deputies look for Tommy throughout the night. They trace his path between the Arlington Plaza and his home, looking for evidence, asking questions. Over the next two days, they'll interview more than 50 children to see if anyone knows anything. They ask everyone the same question they asked in Joe Kulesa's case, could Tommy have simply run away? No way, Tommy's parents say. His mom tells a reporter that he was probably either hit by a car or picked up by someone in a car, but it would never have been his intent not to return home. Well, the sheriff's office, 
They're pulling out all the stops. They employ helicopters, bloodhounds, a mounted posse, skin divers, check out area ponds and lakes. Tommy's parents make handbills and distribute them to stores and gas stations throughout Summit and northern Stark counties. They offer a $500 reward for information. Days go by, and Tommy's family is helpless to do anything more than to wait for word of his fate. Now on June 12, that's a Wednesday and exactly one week from the day Tommy vanished, 12-year-old Ruth Guthrie is at the Midwest Industrial Free Fair at Talmadge High School Stadium. Now Ruth had earned her way to the fair by doing chores at home. Her mom, Edna, paid her $2. That was plenty of money for a day of fun at a fair. She tucked the money into her pocket and left her Talmadge home on West Howe Road at about 2 p.m., and walked a mile south to the fair. Now, she's a pretty five foot one, 90-pound girl. She's got bobbed brown hair and blue eyes. She's not alone. She's with friends, and they spend the afternoon on amusement rides and playing carnival games. Now, it's a popular event. There are more than 30,000 people in an attendance there. But as the supper hour approaches, Ruth and the two friends leave the stadium to begin their walk home. The three girls are together for most of the walk. They take a shortcut through a grassy field near Overdale School. Then Ruth's two friends peel off for their own homes, leaving Ruth just three blocks to walk alone. About 5 p.m., Ruth bids her friends goodbye at the corner of Beer Street and Vinewood Avenue. Then she begins to walk north along Beers. Back at home, Ruth is late for dinner. But her parents figure she's having fun and lost track of time. Then day turns to dusk, and their anxiety increases. At midnight, her father, Willis, calls police. Talmadge police question carnival workers, fairgoers, and Ruth's friends. More than 100 people, everyone from Boy Scouts to firefighters to neighbors, turn out to join a broad search through the fields, woods, and ponds of northwest Talmadge. They find nothing. Outside of Talmadge, people want to help. In neighboring Monroe Falls, the teen council puts up $50 for information on Ruth's disappearance. When Talmadge police mention how shorthanded they are, neighboring Stowe sends over a detective to help on the case. But days turn into weeks, and weeks turn into months without a shred of evidence to help find Ruth. The disappearance of Tommy and Ruth are covered in detail by the local media, but it isn't until September that Joe's disappearance is publicly revealed. Oh, that's a long time. Well, for three months, the names of Tommy and Ruth have been inseparable in newspapers and evening television newscasts. Now, finally, Joe's name is added to the list, and everybody is aware there are three missing children in the Akron area, three children who left home and never returned during a 10-day period in June. At dinner tables throughout the area, families are discussing the cases. Could one or more of the kids be runaways? Were they kidnapped? Is a killer on the loose? Are the cases connected? Or are there three completely separate scenarios? Could there be three different suspects? Of course, investigators have been plenty busy trying to figure that out. There were hundreds of leads to follow. In Talmadge, investigators follow a lead all the way to Decatur, Indiana, looking for Ruth. 
In Akron, police have solicited help from authorities ranging from West Virginia to Los Angeles, tracking down tips. Joe Kulesa's father even flies to Long Island, New York, in pursuit of a lead that will eventually prove fruitless. And in Green, the Summit County Sheriff has had its hands full with Tommy's case. There are sightings being reported all over the place. People say they've seen him at a bus stop on Brown Street, running a kayak in the Portage Lakes, playing in Firestone Park. Acquaintances said they even saw him at the park, laying on a bench, and that when they called to him, he jumped up and darted away. A resident in Norton calls to say a boy matching Tommy's description is living on the streets in the area, so police form a dragnet to catch him. They do but he turns out to be a 10-year-old runaway from Cleveland Heights. So it's no wonder the public really focuses on a theory that Joe or Tommy, at least, might have run away. For instance, that summer of 1963, another Akron area teen went missing, and he was found a few weeks later working for a carnival. He had literally run away to join the circus. Okay. But the families of Joe, Tommy, and Ruth, they know something's wrong. Something is very wrong. Summer gives way to fall, fall gives way to winter, winter gives way to spring. And on May 2nd, 1964, almost one year after the trio vanished, a Massillon family is looking for mushrooms in a wooded area of Jackson Township in Stark County. They're off Mudbrook Road, a thousand yards west of Jackson High School. 11-year-old Jean Ann Saner sees something odd laying at the base of an 80-foot tulip tree. She draws closer. They're bones. Oh, no. A human skeleton laying on open ground, fully exposed. Her father, Joseph Saner, calls police. Investigators spend the rest of the day at the site. Along with the bones, they find an 18-inch piece of knotted clothesline and a cloth gag. The clothes with the skeleton give away its identity, but it's up to the Stark County corner to make it official. After looking over dental records, he makes his announcement. It's Tommy Summericks. Cause of death, strangulation. Now, given the condition of his pelvis, it had two fractures. He concludes Tommy put up a fight. Tommy's new shoes are not with him, nor is his wallet. His skeleton is eight miles from home. He wasn't a runway. He was never a runaway. Authorities believe it likely he died the night he'd been taken. You know, this reminds me of a story in the early 80s of Johnny Gotch who um, went missing. Uh, He was a newspaper delivery, and it's almost like, you know, those kids would be stalked from, you know, people just driving, following them around, delivering newspapers. Wondering if that's what happened to somebody, you know, he caught somebody's eye. I don't know. It's just devastating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, three weeks later, on May 27, Hayward Booth is looking over his recent purchase in Portage County. He and his wife left Akron and bought a 130-acre farm in Palmyra Township the previous August. Hayward recalls a nasty smell at the back of the property when he'd briefly looked it over the last time, but he didn't think much of it. The Booths moved into the home in March, and now that the weather had broken, they were ready to give their land a thorough looking over. Hayward Booth was strolling through an orchard, just 50 feet from McClintocksburg Road, when he spies something odd at the base of a hickory tree. 
he draws closer. Their bones. He calls the Portage County Sheriff. Investigators move in. The skeleton is naked from the waist down. Its arms are crossed with hands tied by rope. The clothes with the remains give away its identity, but it's up to the coroner to make it official. After comparing dental records, he makes an announcement. It's Ruth Guthrie. Talmadge Police Sergeant Dave Williams attends the scene. He's been looking for Ruth since the start. Ruthie, Ruthie, he's overheard saying, long have I searched and then to find you like this. Well, Tommy's and Ruth's families are devastated, but it is the ending that expected. At least we now know, John Summerick said after his son was discovered. But one family is still missing a child. Four months after Tommy and Ruth are found, Donna Kulesa talks about the river of tears she's shed for her missing son, Joe. She takes comfort in believing her son was big for his age and well able to take care of himself. She's left his room untouched. His school books were still on his desk in his bedroom, his clothes undisturbed in his closet. I'll be walking along a street and suddenly I think it's Joey coming toward me, she told a reporter. But it always turns out to be another boy. And then, in December of 1964, Donna and Joe Kulesa get a phone call. In Jacksonville, Florida, a young man had walked into a U.S. Marines recruiting station and asked to sign up. He'd been interviewed by Marine Sergeant James Flynn. He gave his name as Joseph Kulesa, and his address is Lorena Avenue in Akron, Ohio. When Sergeant Flynn does a background check, he learns Kulesa has been missing for the better part of two years. He calls Akron police. Police call Jacksonville to ask authorities to find the now 18-year-old at the hotel that he reported as, as his current address and hold on to him. Then police and Donna and Joe Kulesa fly to Florida, telling the press this will be the most wonderful Christmas present. And it's him. Wow, that's <laughs> unbelievable. The boy who disappeared after delivering the Sunday newspaper that day, the boy sought by FBI and police investigators in five states, the boy who went missing the same month as two others who were returned to their families as skeletal remains, he's okay. Now, we don't know how that first conversation with young Joe went. We don't know why he ran away or what had been doing, the long months had been gone. We do know that the family faced more tragedy in the years ahead. In 1973, Joe's younger sister would be struck and killed by a car while crossing a street. In 1975, Joe's parents would divorce, and his father would take his own life with a shotgun. But we also know this. Joe joined the Marines after all. He served 14 years including through the Vietnam War. He left at the rank of gunnery sergeant and joined the reserves as master sergeant. He earned a degree in computer sciences and served as a consultant for 40 years. He raised a family in California, including four children. And he clearly was the same adventurer who left home that day in 1963. Joe died October 5th, 2010, at the age of 64, when he, according to his obituary, fell asleep on his sailboat off Oceanside, California, 
and woke up in God's harbor. Also, as his family wrote in his obituary, and this is a quote, Joe was an insatiable reader with an unending curiosity about the world and his fellow man. He was a deep philosophical thinker with a wry sense of humor and an ample supply of jokes. Joe was a good, honest, loving man. The world is a better place because he passed our way. Well, it sounds like one of the three kids had a bit of a happy ending there, but the murders of Tommy Summericks and Ruthie Guthrie, they were never solved. No, no, they weren't. You know what? Maybe this is a good time for our armchair detective, Steve. Yes, indeed. This is a segment of our program where we invite our Ohio Mystery listener to share their thoughts and theories on the case. And today, we welcome Jennifer Harbour, who, by the way, is my sister and one of our biggest fans. (laughs) Welcome, Jennifer. Welcome, Jennifer. Hi, everybody. Hey, that's my line. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer Jennifer lives in Canal Fulton, and she is mom to four kids, including a couple of teenagers. Jenny, what I was thinking of you for this podcast, I was thinking, oh, parts of this just must make you cringe as a mother. Oh, yeah. Very scary to think about. That's why my kids aren't allowed to go anywhere alone. (laughs) (laughs) Well... You know, I think one of the interesting things about this story for me was how the police and the media have to make a decision on what to make public and what not, because they they literally, in the Akron area, get dozens of missing persons mm-hmm. cases a week, and they can't make each one a story. Most of them uh, are kids who have just run away. What do you think about that decision-making process, and and does part of you understand why some cases would just never get reported? Yeah, I was uh, thinking about Joe's family and how frustrated they must have been that, you know, he's their child's missing and nothing's been put out there and nothing's been said. Yeah, as a parent, that's that's got to be very, very, very frustrating. I, I, I can only see it as like through a parent's point of view. And of course, if my child's missing and, and they're telling me my, my kid could be a runaway, um, that'd be infuriating because, of course, you want it all over the news. You want it in the newspapers. You want people helping you look. So, yeah, I can only say from a parent's point of view. As the story progressed and you got to hear a little bit more about Joe and Tommy and what people were reporting and the leads they were chasing, as a mother reading those reports, would you have kind of presumed them both to be runaways at that point? No, actually not. My uh, first instinct was that both of the stories had been foul play and that maybe there was a serial killer. I never thought for a second that either of them had run away, even with uh, Joe having problems at school, having, uh, you know, problems with... uh, his classes or whatever it was, I didn't think for a minute that uh, he had run away. You know, both of the first two cases, Joe and Tommy, involved a paper route. Mm -hmm. Did that stick out in your mind at all? My first instinct was to trace it back to that, that maybe someone had been following them or it was somebody on the route or... I know Tommy was filling in for somebody, so I wasn't sure where his route was, and maybe it was near where Joe's route was, and that maybe uh, it was someone they had delivered to that had been following them or 
tracked them down or whatever. So, yeah, that was definitely something that had me thinking. And, you know, you had mentioned the potential for serial killer when Ruthie was thrown into this equation, now you've got a girl and mm-hmm. not just teenage boys. Does right. that change things for you? Because the sexual predators and child predators, they tend to have an MO, a type. Yeah. And teenage boys and a, and a young girl don't seem like they would fit the same type. What were your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't think the fact that she was a girl made me think any differently. I with a serial killer, I mean you never know some serial killers just kill to kill and it it has nothing to do with the gender. So that didn't really stick out to anything. All three kids had money. Um she, you know, she went to a fair with some friends, so that I didn't think any anything different because of her gender. Okay. When Tommy and Ruthie were both discovered, were you pretty confident that at that point, that Joe was going to be the next. Oh, yeah. I definitely thought that he was going to be found in a wooded area or a field or something just like the other two. And when he wasn't? That kind of gave me a little bit of a happy ending there. I wish it could have ended like that for all three of them. But, yeah, that was uh, that was kind of a happy ending to such a sad story that he was actually alive. And he did live such a good life. I loved his obituary. You know, I'm I'm assuming maybe his kids had written that and that he had made an impact. You know, so many obituaries are very straightforward, just kind of like resumes. Mm -hmm. And yet there was such a personality that they had put into that obit that clearly the family that had written it, you know, was really affected by his life Mm -hmm. in in a positive way. And, And yeah. And I thought that was a, a nice ending. Yeah, it was, especially since, uh, you know, he had a sister who passed away and his father committed suicide. So it was nice that he was able able to overcome that, make, you know, do something really great with his life. He, you know, served for 14 years and had four children. Yeah, he he ran away when he was younger, but maybe that was something he had to do to become the person that he was. So, yeah, I th- thought that was a great ending to the story. One thing that we did not really bring up in the episode that is definitely worth mentioning, there was another child killed in the Akron area at this time. Just a few months before this happened, Marion Brubaker was uh, strangled in the woods in Coventry Township, which is not far from these locations. And I didn't include that. We did a, a Marion Brubaker was our very first ever podcast. And if you uh, listeners, if you haven't heard that one, go back to episode number one, The Unsolved Murder of Marion Brew Baker. And I did not link it to this because police felt they had a very strong suspect in that case. And it was somebody who really would not likely have been involved in these other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't know that. I mean, nobody was arrested in any of these. And it is it is possible that Marion Brew Baker who was killed just a few months before these two, yeah, they could have been connected somehow. Yeah, you never know. Yeah. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. I appreciate your, your insights in this. Thank you for having me, guys. You bet. And that's it for tonight, listeners. 
You can find photos, news clippings, and more at our website at ohiomysteries.com. Lots of good stuff there. If you like our podcast, please hit that subscribe button on the podcast app. We very much appreciate each and every one of you, and we don't want you to miss out on a single episode. We do appreciate all of you. And that's why we're giving you the gift of music by introducing you to an Ohio-based artist every episode. So tonight, let me tell you a little bit about Micah Schnabel. Micah, out of Columbus, describes his music as folk, punk, and the spoken word. When I listen to his songs, I don't know, it's like there is this raw quality, and yet it also feels to me crafted like a piece of artwork. You've just got to listen to every word. Anyway, you can follow Micah on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can sample all of his songs at bandcamp.com. Just go there and search for his name. It's Micah, M-I-C-A-H, Schnabel, S-C-H-N-A-B-E-L. And Micah is also an author. His first novel, Hello, My Name is Henry, was released last year on White Gorilla Press and is available on Amazon as well as at his Bandcamp.com site. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. My name is Henry. My name is Henry. Probably what Henry VIII said to Anne Boleyn when he first met her. Whoa. Hi. My name is Henry. I'm Henry. (laughs) (laughs) So tonight, we're going to leave you with Micah's song, Scared of Heights. Turn it all the way up to 11, and we'll see you right back here on Ohio Mysteries next week with a brand new episode. Ah, shucks, I'm just happy to be here. We'll get your hand stamped and one foot through the door. Been beating like a little brother in the backseat of a station wagon in 1994. Cause being passive, yeah, it hasn't made me righteous. And being friendly hasn't made me many friends It's made me a jester and a joke With the noose of arrogance and hope I can use to hang myself in the closet when the party ends So I've been thinking about learning to paint houses Spend the days up on the ladder inside my head But I'm scared to death of heights And the customer's always right So I'm drawn back to the drawing board again And on the fire escape From the back of the apartment There's an old man smashing bottles Against the old abandoned church Screaming, God damn it, I'm a person too And all that I could think to do Was smash some glass in some form of communion Cause I've been beaten like a little brother In the backseat of a station wagon in 1994 But ah shucks I'm just happy to be here But I'm not your little brother anymore This is the story of the one As a maintenance engineer he hears things differently To the untrained ear everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. 
so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.